Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canada, A Yearly Journey. Some amazing Canadians were born in 1887, and a lot of political things would happen as Canada moved into the latter part of the 1880s. On January 21st, Georges Vezina is born in Quebec. He would go on to become one of the greatest hockey goaltenders in history. He would play seven seasons in the National Hockey Association and nine seasons in the National Hockey League. All with the Montreal Canadiens. In 1910, after he was signed by the Canadiens, he would play in 327 consecutive games in the regular season and 39 playoff games. He was the only goaltender for the team until 1925 when he left a game early in that year. He would win the Stanley Cup in 1916 and 1924 and allowed the fewest goals in the league seven times in his career. In 1918, he became the first NHL goaltender to record a shutout and earn an assist on a goal. And after he died on March 27, 1926 from tuberculosis, the Canadians donated the Vezina Trophy to the NHL as an award to the goaltender who allowed the fewest goals during the season. Since 1981, it is presented to the most outstanding goaltender in the league. In 1945, when the Hockey Hall of Fame opened, Vezina was one of the first nine inductees, and in 2017, he was listed as one of the 100 greatest players in NHL history. Upon his death, the Montreal Standard called him the greatest goaltender of the last two decades. On January 25th, Sir Louis-Olivier Talion became the Premier of Quebec. He replaced his predecessor, John Jones Ross, and served from January 25th to January 29th. This short term was because Ross had lost the 1886 election, but kept power with a minority government until that started to collapse. After January 29th, Talion became the leader of the opposition, but he would make his way back to being Premier in 1892, this time serving not for four days, but for four years. On February 20th, Vincent Massey was born in Toronto. He would befriend future Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King while studying law at Oxford and would eventually begin a diplomatic career that saw him serving as an envoy to the United States and the United Kingdom. In 1926, he would be part of the Canadian delegation to the Imperial Conference where the influential Balfour Declaration was drafted that would lead to a huge constitutional change in Canada related to the role of Governors-General and the Monarch. He would serve in the role of the diplomat until 1930 when the Liberals lost the federal election to the Conservatives. New Prime Minister R.B. Bennett did not want Massey to continue as the government's representative because he was a Liberal and he did not have the confidence of the Conservative government. For the next five years, Massey was out of the diplomatic world, but after King returned to the role of Prime Minister in 1935, Massey was tapped to become the High Commissioner to Britain. He would hold this position until 1946 and was highly successful at it. 
During the 1945 election, Massey also served as the campaign manager for King, helping to portray King as a steady and experienced leader to offset the lack of charisma and his poor speaking ability in public. From 1946 to 1951, Massey was the head of the Royal Commission of the Arts and would help establish the National Library of Canada and the Canada Council of the Arts. In 1952, he would be appointed as the Governor-General of Canada, becoming the first Governor-General of Canada who was actually born in Canada. Only five days after Massey was announced as the new Governor-General, King George VI would die and Massey became the first representative of Queen Elizabeth II, since then, every Governor-General has only represented Queen Elizabeth II until this year, with Mary Simon representing both the Queen and King Charles III. For Massey, he looked to John Buchan, a commoner who became Lord Tweedsmere so he could serve as Governor-General, for inspiration in his role. Massey was both a friend and an admirer of Buchan, and he would state he learned a lot from him. On February 28, 1952, Massey was sworn in as Governor-General, that same day he was sworn in, Parliament was opened, marking the first time that both events happened on the same day. To the Canadian people, may I say very humbly that I approach my task with a determination to do all in my power to serve my sovereign. And in so doing, I know I shall be serving Canada. After his installation in Ottawa as Governor-General of Canada, the first Canadian to hold the office, Mr. Vincent Massey donned his uniform. As the Queen's representative, he was about to open Parliament, the first ceremony to be performed after assuming the high office until recently held by Lord Alexander. Pray be seated. Veuillez vous asseoir. Members of the House of Commons, you will be asked to make provision for all essential services and for national defense, and the meeting of our obligations under the United Nations Charter and the North Atlantic Treaty for the next, next fiscal year. Honorable members of the Senate, members of the House of Commons, may divine providence bless your deliberations. Massey would say in his speech in the House of Commons, highlighting the fact that the Cold War was beginning with an air of concern for communism. He stated, the situation throughout the world continues to cause concern and to require my ministers to devote a great deal of attention to our external affairs. The government remains convinced that the nations of the free world must continue to increase their combined strength in order to ensure lasting peace and security. Massey would journey across Canada by car, train and plane, but also by canoe and dog sled when the convenient modes of transportation were not available. During one trip in 1956, he would wear traditional Inuit clothing and attempted to catch fish through a hole dug in the ice. He would also suffer frostbite on his chin when he was out in temperatures that dipped below minus 30 degrees Celsius. He would fly over the North Pole, and he was the first Governor General to do so, which he did on a 10,000-mile, 17-day trip to visit the most isolated communities possible in the Canadian Arctic. At the North Pole, Massey would leave a canister that contained a square of silk from the Governor-General's standard. He would pass away on December 30, 1967, only one day before Canada's centennial year ended. The Queen would say in a statement, His many services to his country and to his sovereign will long be remembered. My husband joins me in sending our sincere sympathy to you and the Canadian government and people in this great loss. 
On February 22nd, Sir John A. Macdonald stayed in power as Prime Minister with a majority government win over Liberal opponent Edward Blake. The Conservatives had a relatively easy time with this election campaign, as Blake had been given indications he would resign as leader of the Liberals for some time, including right before the election. The call of the election had caught Blake off guard as well, but with Oliver Mowat not wanting to lead the party, there was little choice for Blake but to lead the Liberals into one more election. While the Conservatives continued to ride the national policy as their campaign platform, the Liberals focused on lowering tariffs, imposing taxes on luxuries, and limiting free trade with the United States. Newspapers naturally made no secret of who they supported, once again displaying how to vote by showing a completed voting card with the candidate the newspaper supported highlighted with an X next to the name. The Ottawa Daily Citizen wrote in detail how to vote in support of a candidate they agreed with, stating, the names of Misters Purley and Bobillard will occupy the centre position on the ballot paper. Each elector has two votes. Conservatives will of course mark the ballot for the candidate of the party. Today brings to a close the most important electoral struggle since Confederation. The contest has been a short but intensely bitter one on the part of the opposition, who have based their campaign wholly upon slander, misrepresentation and appeals to passion and prejudice. The Gazette went a further step, stating that the voting for the Liberals was a vote for Nova Scotia to secede, stating, A vote for a Liberal candidate is a vote for the friend of the men who, in Nova Scotia, declare that they hope to disrupt the Dominion by the aid of Mr. Blake, the leader of the Liberal Party. The Liberals continued to grow their seat count, but once again it was not enough. They would finish with 79 seats, up 6 from the previous election, but it was far below the 123 seats the Conservatives won, which was 10 fewer than they had in the 1887 election. The Conservatives may not have known it at the time, but the slow decline that would see them removed from power by the electorate in 1896 had begun. Voter turnout was again high, with 70.1% of eligible voters coming out. And despite the relatively high number of eligible voters coming out, the election was quiet by previous standards. Of course, it wouldn't be a 19th century election without a few shady tactics. The Ottawa Journal would report that in Montreal Centre, a card had been sent to supporters of Sir Donald Smith, stating that the poll location had changed. Several individuals went to the new location, only to find that there was no polling booth there. In response, the Conservatives offered $100 for the arrest of the individuals who facilitated the deceit. Two men were also arrested in the riding of Quebec West and charged with bribery and corruption in the election. They were also arrested for perjury for individuals who voted in places of dead men and others who received money for their vote. Police were also called to some polling stations in Quebec City after scuffles were reported between Conservatives and Liberal supporters. On February 25th, Andrew McNaughton was born in Mooseman, in what would one day be Saskatchewan. He would join the Canadian Non-Permanent Militia in 1909 and earn a degree in physics from McGill University in 1910. He would go overseas in 1914 at the outbreak of the First World War, and by November 11th, 1918, he had reached the rank of Brigadier General, having been wounded twice and decorated several times during the war. From 1929 to 1935, he was the Chief of the General Staff, and from November 2nd, 1944 to August 20th, 1945, he was the Minister of National Defence. From January 1948 to December 1949, he was the Canadian Ambassador to the United Nations, and he would pass away on July 11th, 1966. On March 25th, 1887, Philip Konowal would be born in what is now Ukraine. 
After marrying his wife Hannah and having a daughter, Marichka, Philip decided to join the Imperial Russian Army, where he served as an instructor in hand-to-hand -hand combat. After his time in the army was done, he worked as a timberman in Siberia, and then took a job with a Canadian company in 1913. Gradually making his way east from Vancouver working as a timberman, he would lose his job in 1914 and spent the next year working odd jobs. On July 12, 1915, he enlisted with the 77th Canadian Infantry Battalion and left for Europe in June of 1916. In England, Philip was transferred to the 47th British Columbia Battalion and promoted to acting corporal. In April 1917, he would take part in Vimy Ridge, and from August 22nd to 24th, 1917, he fought at the Battle of Hill 70. It was there he would be awarded the Victoria Cross, personally presented to him by King George V. Due to his actions, he was also promoted to sergeant. According to the London Gazette, which published a story on November 23, 1917, Philip's section had to mop up cellars, craters, and machine gun emplacements. There was too much resistance, and in one cellar he would bayonet three Germans, and then attack seven more in a crater by himself, killing them all. He then rushed a machine gun nest, killing the crew and taking the gun. The following day, he then killed men in another machine gun nest and destroyed the gun. In all, by himself, he killed 16 men in two days and was severely wounded in the process. After the war on July 19, 1919, he was out with a friend in Hull, Quebec for dinner. They left early to look at some bicycles owned by an Austro-Hungarian bootlegger and salesman. An argument between his friend and the salesman erupted and his friend was severely beaten. The salesman then turned to Philip, but using his hand-to-hand -hand combat training, Philip was able to defend himself and he killed the man with a single stab wound to the chest. He did not flee the scene and reportedly when police arrived he said, I've killed 52 of them, this makes the 53rd. Veterans soon rallied around him and paid for his bail in October. The trial would be delayed three times until it went forward in 1921. At the trial, medical experts stated that Philip was suffering from several medical problems due to his war injuries. A gunshot wound to his head was increasing pressure on his brain, and experts stated that it was making him mentally unstable. The jury agreed, and he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He then spent the next seven years in an institution. When he was released in 1928, his condition was much better. Philip would eventually find work at the House of Commons as a caretaker. One day, Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King saw the colours of his Victoria Cross ribbon while Philip was working. King then arranged to have Philip gain a lifetime job in King's personal office. In 1951, Prince Philip was at the House of Commons and he saw Philip and his Victoria Cross and he struck up a conversation. And Philip would eventually pass away in Hull, Quebec in 1959. On March 28th, William Smithy, the Premier of British Columbia, would die in office. He had been serving as the 7th Premier of British Columbia since 1883. During his time in the office, the government made large grants of public resources and land to private entrepreneurs. He also helped ensure that the CPR was built through British Columbia to connect the province with the rest of Canada. Davy was the first person to receive his entire law education in British Columbia and had served in the legislature since 1875 with various gaps through the years. Davies served as Premier from 1887 to 1889, but actually fell ill only a few months after taking office and left to live in California. While he was gone, Provincial Secretary John Robson ran the government, keeping in touch with Davy through letters. Davy would return to British Columbia in 1888 and would serve until August 1, 1889, when he too died in office. His brother, Theodore Davy, became Premier in 1892. On April 23rd, McMaster University is founded in Hamilton, Ontario. Today, the university has 27,000 undergraduate and 4,000 postgraduate students. Notable alumni include the greatest Canadian, Tommy Douglas, 
Cyrus Eaton, the founder of Republican Steel, Donna Strickland, a Nobel Prize winner for her work with laser physics, and Myron Scholes, another Nobel Prize winner. On May 3rd, the Nanaimo mine explosion would occur, killing 150 miners. Of the miners at the mine, only seven survived. The explosion happened underground after explosives were put down incorrectly. Several miners died instantly, but others were trapped by the explosion and the fires that burned for an entire day. Most of the miners died from the poisonous gas fumes hours after the explosion. The men wrote farewell messages in the dust on their shovels. A total of 150 children lost their fathers and 46 women lost their husbands. The mine had operated since 1884, and the mine would reopen after the explosion, operating until 1938. On May 4th, William Murdoch would pass away. He had come to Canada in 1854 from Scotland and begun to work as a manager at Gasworks in St. John, New Brunswick, and as a journalist. He was also a noted poet who published poems and songs in 1860 and Discursory Ruminations, a fireside drama in 1876. On May 21st, James Gladstone was born in Mountain Hill in what would one day be Alberta. He would attend St. Paul's Indian Residential School and then the Anglican Mission School on his reserve. He would apprentice as a printer and work as an intern at the Calgary Herald. In 1911, he began working for the Royal Northwest Mounted Police as a scout and interpreter, as well as a mail carrier. He would say years later, I wasn't officially adopted into the Blood Tribe until 1920. Oh, I'd lived with the Bloods all my life. I'd gone to school with them, and I'd married one of them. I was, in effect, one of them. He would then work as a farmer with 400 cattle on his ranch. In 1949, he would be elected as the president of the Indian Association of Alberta and travel to Ottawa three times to push for improvements to the Indian Act. One of the major issues that he tackled were proposed changes to the Indian Act that would have only given Indian status to those born full-blooded Indigenous, rather than anyone who had mixed ancestry like Gladstone. The Calgary Herald reported, The meeting also agreed that there should be no change in defining Indian status in relation to membership in bands, which at presently constituted permits admission by birth and by vote of the band. Some felt that the proposed act would restrict membership to pure-blooded Indians of the most primitive type. In January 1958, he would be nominated to the Senate by Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, two years before status Indigenous were given the right to vote in federal elections, and he became the first status Indigenous to serve in the Senate. Gladstone would say of his accomplishment, My accomplishment is not exceptional. The men I grew up with who have worked hard and made full use of their opportunities have done as well as I. He'd also speak of the task ahead, stating, You must learn to treat every Indian individually according to his ability and interests. The Indian can be driven and only an understanding and interested leadership can aid him in the realization of his potential. Gladstone would state that while he was from Alberta, he would speak for all Indigenous. And he would serve in the Senate until March 1971, and he would pass away on September 4, 1971. On June 2, 1887, Edward Blake, after losing yet another election, chose to have Wilfrid Laurier succeed him as leader of the Liberal Party. Many eminent Liberals were against this as they felt that Laurier was too physically weak to be an effective leader due to chronic bronchitis. They also feared that having Laurier as leader would result in many in Ontario not voting for the Liberals because of his support of Riel. Even the Catholic clergy in Quebec saw Laurier as a radical. Laurier would actually refuse to become leader, writing his friend and saying, I do not want to be leader. That is not my aspiration. But there remain two objections. I am not a wealthy man and my health is poor. My friends are imposing too heavy a burden on me. But Blake, he did not give up, seeing Laurier as the only person who could lead the Liberal Party. 
Finally, on June 18, 1887, Laurier accepted the promotion to leader of the party, but stated he would only do so until Blake was healthier. In the end, Laurier would remain leader longer than anyone else in Canadian history until his death in 1919. As leader, he would devote himself to building up the Liberal Party again, and he did this in two phases. The first was from 1887 to 1891, where he advocated a policy of positive actions with the United States, but this was seen as anti-British, and it would cost Liberals votes outside of Quebec. From 1891 to 1896, he began the second phase of building a national Liberal Party, while the Conservatives were falling apart following the death of Sir John A. Macdonald. This included participating in 200 to 300 meetings between 1895 and 1896 alone, and reaching out personally to 200,000 voters. On July 5th, Joseph Trudeau would be born in Quebec. He would study law at the University of Montreal and practice for 10 years with Ernest Bertrand. He would also build gas stations around Montreal and form the Automobile Owners Association. By 1932, he had 15,000 members using 30 gas stations, and he would sell the company for $1 million. A strong supporter of the Conservative Party, he was often opposed to Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King, who was a Liberal, and he would pass away from a heart attack in 1935. His son, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, would become one of Canada's greatest Prime Ministers, and his grandson, Justin Trudeau, is of course our current Prime Minister. On August 18th, John Palliser would pass away at the age of 70. Born in Ireland to Colonel Ray Palliser, he would serve in the Waterford Militia for several years and would take a hunting trip to British North America in 1847. He would write Solitary Rambles and Adventures of a Hunter in the Prairies in 1853, and in 1857 he led an expedition to the uncharted regions of the Canadian West, which lasted for four years and became known as the Palliser Expedition. He would explore several rivers and, along with the scientists on the journey, would show that the West was perfect for agriculture, countering the decades-long story of the Hudson Bay Company that stated it was not suited for agriculture. This would also help bring an end to the fur trade as a dominant industry in the West. Today, the Fairmount Palliser Hotel in the Palliser neighborhood in Calgary is named for him, as is the Palliser Mountain Range and the Palliser Formation in the Rockies. On December 3rd, Saturday Night begins to publish as a weekly broadsheet newspaper about public affairs and the arts. It would expand to become a general interest magazine and by 1925 had a circulation of 30,000 copies. By the time it ceased production in 2005, it was the oldest general interest magazine in Canada. On December 20th, Walter Shaw was born in West River, Prince Edward Island. He would work as a farmer and civil servant before becoming an MLA in 1959, serving until May 11, 1970. During that time, he would serve as the 22nd Premier of Prince Edward Island, serving from 1959 to 1966, and becoming Premier at the age of 71. He would step down as party leader in 1968, and retire from politics in 1970 at the age of 82. In 1971, he was made an Officer of the Order of Canada, and in 1980 was inducted into the Canadian Agricultural Hall of Fame, and he would pass away on May 29, 1981. On December 26, David H. Harrison became the Premier of Manitoba after his predecessor resigned after a financial crisis involving railway transfers. Unable to win a clear majority of the MLAs, he would lose a by-election on January 12, 1888, and resign one week later. In all, he served as the sixth Premier of Manitoba from December 26, 1887 to January 19, 1888. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at 1887. Next week, we're of course looking at 1888. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. 
We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes.